Right. All right, probably would help if I have the microphone on. Hello, my name is Austin. Um, I'm a part of the team here at Waypoint, and uh, yeah, I'm just so, um, so grateful to be here with you all on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, I think uh, before, before we get started, I would like to uh, <laughs> just spend another, another few moments um, in prayer. Um, and so I just invite you, I invite you to, again, um, pray with me. God, this morning, um, I just pray for your presence to be known, that the hearts in this room, the minds in this room, the bodies in this room would be more aware of the ways that you're moving. So Holy Spirit, move in this place. Jesus, speak your words. God, through your scriptures, may the, the word that we dive into today um, be just as meaningful and impactful today as it was 2,000 years ago. So God, we trust you. We praise you this morning. It's your name that we glorify. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So I've, uh, many of you know this, some of you might not, but I've been a father for a little uh, over two and a half years now, so not very long. Okay, I'm aware of that. But long enough to begin developing some characteristics of a stereotypical dad, or parent, for that matter. Okay, for example, for the most part, if it is comfortable, functional, or I just like it, I'm probably going to wear it. And I think, I even, and I think, this is, I think this is not just a me thing, I think it just happens when you become a dad. Even if it's embarrassing to everyone else around you, right? Just as a dad, you just kind of don't care. Again, remember, as long as it's comfortable, functional, or I just flat out like it, we're probably going to wear it. Sorry if it embarrasses you, Morgan, okay? <laughs> like, I, Morgan audibly groans every time I wear my cargo shorts. Every time, right? And I guess, I, I guess the cargo shorts just aren't stylish. Sorry if you're wearing cargo shorts this morning. Like, I, I would be with you, okay? Um, but I'm not. It's, I just I don't get it. They, they were once in, and now they're not. Um, but I don't care. I just don't care. They're comfortable. They're functional. And I just like them, right? I've got pockets for days with cargo shorts, okay? I can literally carry almost our entire diaper bag in my cargo shorts and still have room for like my Game Boy or whatever, whatever I want to pack that day. <laughs> Although I will say, um, you, you know it's bad if, you, if it's something you see Blair wear on a regular basis. <laughs> so, it's not, so it's not that I don't care about style, not to roast you Blair, but you do wear cargo shorts a lot and it's, <laughs> he doesn't care. <laughs> Okay, so, and so it's, it's not like that I don't care about style. I like to be, I like to be stylish, I, I, um, 
Blair does not care whatsoever. You, you heard it back there. Again, been a dad a lot longer than I have, so that tracks. It makes sense. Um, lately, I heard myself say something that I hadn't uh, heard in a long time, and maybe you've heard this too, or you're familiar with this phrase, or maybe you've, you've said it once before. Um, as a parent, maybe you, or as a, as a child, maybe you've heard or you've said this as a parent, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. And it, it, it just came out of my mouth recently, um, and it's funny because we were just talking about it as a family, like the, the things we say as parents, some of the things our parents said to us. Um, and Ophelia just kind of made the comment like, Dada's mad, Dada's mad. And she does this thing, she watches too much Daniel Tiger, Daniel Tiger like crosses his arms, and she doesn't get that he's crossing, she just goes, mad, I'm mad, like a little chicken. So sometimes we just say, like, are you an angry little chicken? That makes her more mad. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Dada's mad, and I'm like, I, I just kind of had this moment. I was, it just came out. It just came out. Like, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. But actually, as most of us are, we, we are mad. Like, I was mad. I was mad that she threw her food all over the floor to feed the dog. Like, I was upset about that. I was righteously so, right? I, I, I can be mad about that. Um, but after looking at, back at that moment, um, I, really, I realized that I really was disappointed, but not with her. She's a toddler, right? It's what they do. <laughs> okay? But also, I, but more than that, I was disappointed um, in myself because I really want Ophi to know that I will always have a deep sense of gratitude and appreciation for her simply because she's my daughter and I love her. And so, in reality, I was, I was more disappointed in myself um, and allowing that sort of, like, just stereotypical parental, like, response that we've heard over the years just to come, like, flying out of my mouth. It was, it was just easy in the moment for me to say that rather than, like, articulate why I was feeling mad, which would be actually right now considerably more helpful for the stage of, for where she's trying to figure out her emotions, identify and appropriately express them. Holy moly, could use some pointers on that. So that would have been a lot helpful for me to just articulate why I'm mad instead of just say something that's stereotypical response. And so some of these uh, characteristics or stereotypical things about parenthood or being a dad or whatever, being a mom, um, are trivial and like we can joke about them. And you know, some can be mostly true, some can be mostly false. Uh, but there are some that I think can have a lasting impact, especially on those around us, and can impact especially how our kids feel about us themselves and even impact their kids later on. And I say all this to say, I think this same exact kind of thing happens to God. There are certain characteristics and stereotypes that get placed on God that impact how we think, feel, and interact with God. I think one of the most common um, that I've heard recently is, uh, is God being referred to as the angry big man upstairs. Maybe you just heard big man upstairs. But I've heard angry too. And I think that phrase can just communicate so much and sometimes we don't even realize it and it just slips out of our mouths sometimes or we hear it and we don't really think anything of it. The reality is if we're not intentional about learning to know God's true character, his good plan, and how he sees us, we can easily become frustrated, confused, 
or, sorry, not frustrated, confused by the voices around us and even inside us that don't have a right or proper or good understanding or true understanding of our God revealed to us through Jesus. If we're not intentional about learning to know God's character. So today, this morning, we're going to be intentional and learn more about God. Crazy. I know you weren't expecting that on a Sunday, especially at a church, right? Um, but I really don't know how else to put it. It seems so simple and almost uh, silly, um, but I am sometimes shocked at some of the things that um, people, Christians even, think about the God of the Bible. And so we're going to examine a moment uh, that Jesus has with a paralyzed man, his friends, and some other Bible teachers, and hope to learn more about God, the God that Jesus embodies and reveals to us. So if you've got your Bibles with you, or you've got the Bible app, however you want to do it, I invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1, uh, and as, um, for the most part, the verses will be up on the screen as well. But before we dive in, I just want to do a quick recap of what's already happened in Mark 1. <clears throat> So since we're starting in Mark chapter 2, just want to kind of bring you up to speed on what's, what Jesus has been up to. Um, so Mark 1 starts off, okay, and he actually quotes some Old Testament prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, who prophesied about a man who would come from the wilderness and prepare the way for the Lord, okay? And some of you might know this person. Who was this wilderness man? Yeah, I heard it. I heard some of you, you know, Sunday school Bible, Bible kids in here, gold star for you. Yep, John the Baptist, okay, um, he was definitely a wilderness man, the guy, strange character, right, wore animal furs, ate bugs, okay, great guy, Jesus' cousin, um, but just kind of strange, just kind of a strange character. Anyway, um, so John comes, uh, calls people to repent, um, to get right with God, because uh, Jesus is coming. Okay, because the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is coming. And so then Jesus comes, John baptizes Jesus, um, and from there Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, um, and then after that Jesus comes back and he begins his ministry preaching this. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So he's proclaiming the good news of God. And what follows the good news of that kingdom of God what follows that proclamation that Jesus has in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus goes throughout Galilee healing people, casting out demons, and restoring people. He calls people to join him, to follow after him, and then he just goes healing people, casting out demons. For the kingdom of God to come near to Jesus, first and foremost, means making people whole. And so as you can imagine, this begins to attract a lot of people because Jesus is doing things, teaching things and healing like no one has ever seen or heard of before. Okay? Feel good about Mark chapter 1? Okay? See if you had nods. Great. Fantastic. All right, we're caught up. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. A few days later, when Jesus again entered uh, Capernaum, which is in, it's in Galilee, uh, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Again, the word, the word in this case being that the kingdom is coming. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's here. Okay? And so, again, 
He's, he's just been healing a bunch of people. He's been preaching with authority, as we read in Mark chapter 1. Like, he's, no one else has been doing things that he has done. And so people caught wind of that. They caught wind that Jesus is coming back, and they wanted to come hear it and see it for themselves. And so it's packed. There's no room left, we read, not even outside the door. Okay, so I have, a, I have an image of a modern-day Capernaum. And um, here is Peter's, uh, Simon Peter's, digitally uh, created house. Okay, this is actually where, sorry, it's kind of fuzzy. It didn't look like that on my computer. I apologize. D uh, pixelated. Um, but it's kind of cool. So, and actually many scholars assume that it was uh, Peter's house because Peter's house was located in Capernaum. And so this gives us an idea of what it would have looked like as Jesus uh, was teaching. Okay, so he most likely would have been in one of those rooms up there at the top. And you kind of have a courtyard. There would have been lots of windows underneath. You could, have, you could be able to, you could see in and, and see out. Okay, and it would have been, it fit about 20 to 50 people max, maybe. Um, and so it, it would have been packed, crowded. And we read that there are people standing outside, like not even room left outside, I imagine, in that courtyard right there where you can kind of see those stairs going up, which we'll get to that later. So it was just, it was packed. Everyone is there to listen to Jesus, including, including the Bible teachers at the time. They were curious. They heard about this Jesus guy. They heard about the things that he was saying, the things that he was doing, all these healings. Like, no one's ever done this before, so they're automatically curious. Like, what is this dude about? Okay? What is he about? He's teaching the Bible. So, um, so they show up too. All right? So a lot of people there. This gives us an idea of what it would look like. And, uh, and yeah. So this image will be helpful for us later. Verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him, Jesus, a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made him an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was laying on down through. So like this, essentially, I'm just putting myself, this sounds really strange, I'm trying to put myself in Jesus' shoes and... Um, just imagine someone's banging at the roof above us right now as we speak. It, it, like there's just jackhammers going on up there. And, you know, again, like teach. I wonder if Jesus stopped. Like, I just wonder if Jesus was like, what is happening up there? There would be like dust and muck falling through. There would be leaves. There would be twigs and branches. It was, we read in the gospel, I think it is Luke, that it was like tiled. And so they were pulling apart a tile of the, up there. And like these, these homes, these, can we go back to that picture? These roofs were flat up top, and they were built to be like floors. So that, you, that was workspace. You would use that space to go up and work. If you were a fisherman, which Capernaum was a, was a city of, a fishing city, you would be drying your fish up there. You would use it to get work done up there. And so this is someone's like home and workspace, and it's just being torn apart up there while Jesus is preaching. I can't imagine what um, Peter is thinking as he's sitting there like, someone is destroying my house, Jesus, and you're just going to let them do it? What are you doing? Anyway, um, that is happening. And so um, they drop down. Eventually, the, the roof comes open, and the tiles are removed. Um, Jesus is, you know, shrugging off the dust. And this paralyzed man is put down in a mat on a mat in front of him. I don't know if they hold the mat by the four corners and kind of drop him down, but um, he gets placed right in front of Jesus. 
When Jesus, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so, first of all, there is a lot going on in this one verse alone. Um, and so, I only have time to cue in on a, f- a few. So, we're going we're gonna to do this. First thing I want to note, um, throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you'll read about this, this idea, this thing called faith. And you'll see Jesus use this word, this idea. Almost always when people are being healed or transformed, Jesus will bring up their faith. And this word faith is often affiliated uh, with their trust and belief in Jesus, who he says he is and what he can do. And so in this example, whose faith are we talking about here? Any, any thoughts or ideas? Yeah. He says their faith. Their faith. Jesus isn't talking just about the paralyzed man. I think we can assume, we can lump him in with his friends at some level. But he says their faith. And I just want to say this real quick, friends. This is, this is why we need each other. Who knows how long this, this man has been paralyzed for? How long he's been um, set on a mat? Looked down upon this, the, in this culture and day and age, this would have been the lowest of lows. Apart from being, being a leper and cast out of society. And so you don't know how long that this man has been there. His, what hope he has left in God. And so Jesus recognizes something. He says, their faith, the faith of your friends. There are times in our lives, difficult times, when our faith is weak, when we lost hope. And this is why it's important to be a part of a faith community, to be a part of a body of believers who can carry us, like in this story, literally, carry us into the presence of Jesus. So friends, the significance of being connected to a body of believers, a faith community, community cannot be understated. We need people of faith around us and in our lives on a regular basis, more than just once a month, more than just once a week, on a regular basis. Now, how does Jesus know? How does Jesus know that they have faith? We read, he saw their faith, right? He saw their faith. What did he just see them do? They just tore apart a roof. They just ripped open a building to get to Jesus. Everyone could see it. Not just Jesus saw their faith. Everyone in the room saw this, but Jesus recognizes it. He calls it out, and I think this speaks a word to us today because this language is a bit strange, and I don't think we often grasp it. Like, we don't often say, yeah, I saw their faith. I saw their faith today, right? Hey, Scott, I saw Scott's faith today. Cool thing. Hey, Scott, I saw your faith today. Sweet. No, who says that? Does anyone say that? 
We don't talk about faith like that. And yet in this moment, that is exactly how Jesus talks about it. In some cases, faith today is based upon maybe the feelings that you can muster up or if you say the right thing or pray the right prayer or believe the right things. When the kind of faith Jesus recognizes time and time again in the scriptures is a faith that he can see. And what did he see? These men desperately tearing apart a roof to get their friend in front of Jesus. What does your faith look like? Does it look like anything other than just words or information, or are you tearing roofs apart to get to Jesus? And I'm not saying that what we say and, the, and what we think or having like correct information and theology doesn't matter. I think those things are very important. I think that's clear. But, <clears throat> however, it is through the choices that we make and the ways that we live our lives that show our deepest convictions and beliefs about who we say Jesus is. So Jesus sees their faith, and then he addresses the paralyzed man, and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now let's take a second, step out of our like church clothes, all right, and just say, all right, how would I feel in the moment to this response? Put yourself in this guy's shoes. You and your friends just tore apart a roof to get to Jesus. You've heard about him you were just dropped down. I don't know if it was gently or not. We just say he was laid in front of Jesus. I mean, they don't have long arms. Maybe they had ropes. I don't know. It could have been brutal, but you just get dropped in front of Jesus. You've heard about him healing people. You get put there because you can't walk. And Jesus tells you, son, your sins are forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. That's great and all. Can't you see my legs don't work? Maybe I'm the only one who thought that was funny. Why does he say that? Why does Jesus respond to that first? Jesus had every intent of healing this man. Right? I think this man was hoping for healing. That's what he wanted. Right? Again, Jesus had every intent of healing this man, but I think as we'll, as we'll discover here in a bit later in the story, Jesus has this like sixth sense. He has this just, um, we'll read about it, but this, he, he can read people in a divine way. I also think he's the most self-aware human being ever to live and very aware of his surroundings, but he also has a divine sense about him, and so he knows, he knows what people want to hear, but he also knows exactly what people need to hear. Sometimes those aren't the same. And so why would he address the man's sins first? Well, some would argue, <clears throat> and I think this is, I'm going to go through like a, a list of things. Some would argue, and they're all valid, uh, that, what this, that that is what this man needed to hear because he's messed up pretty bad. Because he's messed up, he's sinned. And I think that's a fair point. Because there isn't a person in this room who hasn't sinned. I think we're all pretty messed up. 
I think if we're truly honest with ourselves, we would admit that we all have contributed in some way to the reason why this world is the way that it is, and that we all really need forgiveness. Another is that this takes place in a time and in a culture where sickness and disease is often affiliated with sin. You did something bad, you sinned against God, you get sick, you get a disease, you get paralyzed, right? Oh man, you're sick, oh you have a disease, well what did you do to take God off today? <laughs> you need to figure that out. And there are stories in the, in the Bible, in Jesus' Bible, that would back up this line of thinking. Moses' sister, Miriam, talks bad, talks smack about Moses behind his back. She gets a disease. Now, God, is, God ends up healing her, but that, that happens. But then there's also a whole other book of the Bible that's, a, that's literally about a guy who didn't sin, who, who, who was, in God's eyes, pure, and guess what? He went, through, he went through some of the worst sickness, some of the worst tragedies a human can experience. And what's the book of that? What's the name of that book? Job completely contradicts that idea. So you have this culture that this man is, has grown up in where he's been laying on this mat for who knows how long and he's probably been told time and time again, God's mad at you. He's not just mad, he's disappointed, right? God's angry with you, and that's why you are the way that you are. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, can you imagine what this guy's heart and life must be like? Can you imagine the types of ways that he feels when he hears and thinks about God? I surely can't. There's something really interesting that I want to point out here. This word son that Jesus uses. Son, your sins are forgiven. I think this clues us in to something here. Because this word, son, is more better translated is to child or little boy or my son or my child. And so this man who has a complex relationship with God is in front of someone who's commonly referred to himself as the son of man. Everyone would have known what that would have meant. If you don't know what that means, go to, to Daniel 7. We did a series on that whole phrase. Um, <clears throat> this idea, Jesus is saying who he is, and he has the authority to heal and forgive. And so this man gets in front of him, this teacher of the law, this, this Bible person, who's probably been, he's probably been afraid of for his whole life, and he looks at him and he says, son, my child, little boy, your sins are forgiven. God is not mad at you. God is not angry with you.
This man, his whole life he has believed something about himself that has caused immense shame and guilt. Sinner, worthless, dirty. God's clearly angry with you. And so in this moment, when Jesus looks at this man and says, my child, little boy, this is an endearing word in the scriptures, and we don't hear that. when we, Son is such a universal term. So we don't hear that part of it, but it is this endearing, loving word that is used here. And so in this moment, I think Jesus has just reshaped this man's entire belief system around God. Yes, this man wants to be healed. But man, I think he really needed to hear that God is not mad at you. He loves you, and you are forgiven. He needed to hear God is not out to get you. He's here. He's out to rescue you. He is not some distant big guy upstairs who's, who's disappointed. Our God, Yahweh, he is with us, Emmanuel, desperate to save you. Jesus is living proof of that, that God gave his own son. And so Jesus comes to you and me and he says, child, little boy, little girl, son, daughter, God is not mad at you. He's not upset with you. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Let me heal you. These are the kinds of words um, that get certain kinds of people really angry. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, <clears throat> why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blaspheming? What does that even mean? He's blaspheming. To, to them, this is, this is a huge issue. And I think what we'll find out is this is actually one of the reasons that puts Jesus, that gets a, a, a mark put on him, but gets a hit put out on him, essentially. This is that first step down that path. They realize this guy is dangerous. He is not one of us. He is against everything that we are for. Because in order to receive forgiveness from God, there was a process. And in this process long ago, first you'd have to hike about 120 miles south uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, you'd have to bring with you an unblemished um, lamb or animal of some sort, depending on the severity of the sin, or some cash so you could buy some at the temple. Um, and then you would wait in line, you'd go to the priest, um, you'd have to admit what you've done, and then he would take your sacrifice that you've either brought with you or, or bought or purchased, and he would slit its throat right in front of you, and um, you'd have to think about what you've done. And then, and then you would be forgiven because your debt had been paid, and you would be right with God. That was the process. If that was the process for us today, how many of you would just keep on sinning? Be pretty, be pretty brutal. Be pretty intense, and it was. This was a cultural thing then. This was, this was righteous. This, this is what we could go through Exodus and, and read you in Leviticus and read you the, the rules about this. God said to do this, 
Because when we sin, there is something that we do to the world around us that breaks down the relationship that God has with us and God has with the world. And so we need to make that right and we need to own that. And that was the process. And so Jesus is bypassing all of that. He's bypassing the temple and he's bypassing the high priest priest in that moment. He's just saying, you're forgiven. Jesus is claiming to do something that in their minds he cannot and should not do, and it is dangerous. And this act right here, like I said earlier, will, is, is, is what it will eventually lead to his death on a Roman cross. That is where it begins. Because Jesus, to Jesus, that forgiveness, he is claiming that the kingdom of heaven is here and it's now, and here is what it looks like, forgiveness and healing and restoration and wholeness. That's what's happening in this moment. That's why these these. A scribes, Bible teachers, Pharisees are upset. <clears throat> and immediately, Jesus knew this. In verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And so he asked them a question. He says, what is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? What's easier? What's easier? What, what do you think? If Jesus asked you that question, what would be easier? To say your sins are... Like we, it, it's a tough question. I admit that. But it would be... I mean, anyone, anyone can go out and tell you, hey, your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say that. And that's precisely the reason that makes these guys so upset. Because you cannot and should not say that. And Jesus does both. Right? Which one's easier, forgive this man of his sins or make this man get up and walk? Which would be, I mean, clearly everyone, that would have been the harder one. And Jesus says both. And then he goes on to say, verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, there's that Daniel 7 line, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself in, in the Gospel of Mark, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And like it took us a while to get through this story, but that really probably all happened in a matter of like 10 seconds. Man comes through. Ceiling, son, your sins are forgiven. Why are you guys thinking that? What's easier? Forgive this man's sins or to tell him to get up and walk, to heal him. Okay, no answer. Okay, got it. Your sins are forgiven. Take, get up your mat and walk. Again. Oh. What does this mean for us 2,000 years later, this, this moment, this interaction in the Bible? In God's Word. I think it's the same thing for us today as it was for the people in that room. Who do you say Jesus is? Does your faith show that? Because just like the man in the story, we come to Jesus with all sorts of crap, baggage, sin, 
the ways that we've wronged others, ways that we've disobeyed God, dishonored one another in God. We all bring that to the table. And the first thing, the first thing that Jesus wants someone to know when they are placed in front of them with all of that baggage is son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. Now pick up your mat. Let's move forward into something new, into something beautiful for you and for me, for us. So I don't know where this lands for you today, what side of the teaching you find yourself on, but Jesus surely knows where this lands for you, and he surely knows your story in all of this. And so as we, I think this is such an important moment in the scriptures, and I think, it, I think we should all read this again this week at some point and really consider the words of Jesus and consider the actions of these men in consideration with our own faith and our own life. Can I pray with you? Jesus, thank you again for this opportunity to be here this morning together with people that is my community of faith, the people that come around me when I'm wrestling in my belief because of the chaos that's in my life, the people that I hope and pray for the opportunity to come alongside them when they need faith. So God, as we're gathered here today, um, we just, we pray in this moment, God, this story that happened 2,000 years ago, may it be just as relevant for us today. Some of us walked into this room with a belief or an understanding that God is upset with them, that God is, that you are angry with us, Lord. And we read that when we come to you, we are forgiven. And that doesn't mean that the, the, our sin and our, and our mistakes don't have consequences with us or in this world, but God, it does mean that you are partnered with us to move us forward, that you are committed to us in spite of our sin to forgive us and to heal us and to make us whole, to restore us. And so God, I pray for, it. I pray for that this morning. I pray for the healing of our souls, for our minds and our bodies. I pray that we would come to you despite whatever connotations we have with you given to us by the world, our parents, whatever voices there are around us or inside us, that we can come to you in this story of Jesus healing a man and forgiving his sins, can come to reshape our definition of you, the characteristics that you have, your disposition toward us in loving kindness to come before us in the person of Jesus 
to walk humbly with us. Show us. And then take for us the burden of our sin and consequences so that we might be in right relationship with you, God. We're grateful for that this morning. And so I pray for the hearts in this room who are yearning for forgiveness, who are feeling the guilt and the shame, who are feeling that they can't come to you. God, that you would look at them and they would hear these words, son, daughter, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Jesus, may we take those words and may we honor you with our lives. May we pursue you with a faith that tears down roofs just to get to you, to be with you. And that we have that faith and we take that faith to our friends. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your forgiveness and for your work on the cross. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.